My name is Chad, and uh, I'm one of the pastors uh, here at Redeemer, and it's my privilege to bring you God's Word for today. Uh, but before we do that, I just I hope that through all the storms and the heat uh, that you are uh, dry and doing well today. Uh, know that there was some trouble for, for some folks, but um, glad that everyone's okay and uh, good to be here. I hope that you're having a good weekend and a blessed Lord's Day. First, what good news it is, uh, amen, that this past week our Congress successfully and nearly unanimously passed legislation to recognize Juneteenth as a federal holiday yesterday, June 19th. So I say happy Juneteenth to everyone. We lament that it took 155 years to have an official holiday to settle what the great conclusion of the Civil War was, but we rejoice in that we have such a day. And while it may seem just a token, it is right as a symbol to say that black lives mattered 150 years, 55 years ago, and black lives matter still today. Amen. We are strengthened by celebrating, and we pray, and we hope for, for the kind of reconciliation and restoration that only God can bring. And so that is a part of what God is doing in the world, and we rejoice in it. Secondly, I just want to wish all of the fathers here today a very happy Father's Day. I hope that it's a barbecue day, a burger day, or a brat day, or something outside kind of day over a grill. And uh, that you are with your family and that you celebrate and that all of us, if we're still able, that we let our father know that we reach out to our dads, that we let them know that we love them and we're thankful for them. It's one of the Lord's commands to honor our father and our mother. And while it's not, it's a, it's a lot more than just saying thank you on Father's Day. It's not less than that. And I know that there are sons and daughters in this room that have lost a father or have no real relationship with their father. And there are fathers in this room who've lost children or, have, or who have no real relationship with your sons and daughters. So we rejoice with those who rejoice and we mourn with those who mourn. As most importantly, we're here as the family of God. And we have more than one father in this room. We have fathers in the faith and we have God our father. And what a joy it is to worship God as our Father because He is not angry with us and our relationship with Him is not broken. In fact, we have a Father who runs to prodigals, amen, who is steadfast in His love and His mercy and who opens the doors of His house open wide and throws a party for the lost. What a great Father's Day. So I I pray that it's a good one and that you enjoy the, the rest of this day. Um, As I was preparing for today's sermon, I was reflecting on how we've begun to move past the pandemic and back to some normalcy. Praise God. And I've been asking, what have I learned in the past year from this? What effects did this have on me and those around me that I've not yet realized? Because I think there were things that happened that we don't yet understand. A lot of things that we may not understand for a long time. What are its true costs? What are its real lessons? You may be doing the same, and and I wonder how we'll look at it a decade out from now, or how we will describe it to the next generation. What will we remember? How much will we remember? What feelings, emotions, reactions, uh, experiences will we remember and share? 
From the day that the, the pandemic became truly felt and the shutdown, shutdown started Friday, March the 13th, 2020, things began closing down and boarding up, masks went on and handshakes were out, social distancing, which is really just a word for separation, began, and we entered a period of, of, of a kind of social experience that reminded me this week of the words of Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. You know 1 Corinthians 13 is the wedding chapter? Right? Like it's the, it's the chapter of the Bible that's almost always read at a wedding, right? If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels in this famous passage on love, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And love is patient and kind, right? Love never fails. Love never ends. And right near the end of that, Paul, in talking about how far uh, our experience of love now falls short of what our experience of love will be like in the new heavens and new earth, he says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So long as we live with the effects of the fall in the broken world, even with the masks off and no social distancing, we will always know only in part. However, during the pandemic, we were given a, a stark, concrete experience of living life really knowing one another only in part, through a mirror dimly and not face to face. Between most of us and the people that we know and work with, visit with, vacation with, um, worship with, um, shop with, go to the grocery store with, there was placed masks to obscure faces, screens to limit our view. And real physical distance to separate us, even in the same room. And regardless of the choices that we all made individually, in some way, your knowing one another was far more in part than it was before the pandemic. And all of your relating was, was like through a mere dimly and not face to face. Can we all say amen? Like Zoom meetings are not the same thing as real meetings. And everyone said, amen. What we learned was that the real is better than the virtual, that sight is more than viewing, and that relationship is more than communication. Of course, we already knew that, but we know it a whole lot more today than we did 18 months ago. What we missed and longed for is presence. As men and women made in God's image, as persons who are made for relationship, we long for face-to-face -face knowing, to know and be known, to hear and be heard, to, be, to see and be seen. Even those, who vote, those of us who won't admit it, who aren't people persons, you know this to be true as well, because all of us in this ultimate sense, we are people persons. That is, we are all personal when you get to know us. And all of us actually, truly want to be known. So today, as we turn to Matthew chapter 5, we are going to be talking about the ultimate personal presence we were made for and long for, the presence of God. So I invite you today, as you stand with, uh, with me, to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. The Holy Spirit, speaking through Matthew the Evangelist, says, 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the words of Jesus, our Savior, who came, who, who came to us and, and, and was present among us and taught us. And this is, these are the words of Christ. This is a part of the gospel of your kingdom. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding. Lord, that we would see you, that we would see you rightly, that we would see you in faith, and we would look on you and see you as good and true and beautiful, and that we would love you today. We pray, Lord, that you would draw us into your presence as we hear your word, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So you might, might, you might hope that on such a short passage, you get a short sermon. I cannot guarantee that. I've been encouraged by a few friends, you know, about that, but uh, I understand Blessed are those who preach short, for they shall be popular. But I, I, cannot, I cannot say that's my aim today. In fact, the Bible has this wonderful quality that when you dive into one verse, it just sort of like starts to take you all over the place into all the other parts of the Bible. Today, as I unpack this short verse, I want to talk to you about one, the blessedness of seeing God. Two, the blessedness of purity of heart. And three, or lastly, the blessedness of forgiveness. Lest we lose sight of where we are here, let's remind ourselves that we are in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 5 and that Jesus is actually preaching here. In fact, he is in the stage of his ministry where he has great growing uh, followings. The King James called them multitudes of peoples. And the end of chapter 4 says that he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, so his fame spread. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea. It's trying to tell us great crowds followed him from everywhere, even beyond the Jordan. And verse uh, 1 of our chapter says, seeing the crowds... He, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. So today, we're talking about the sixth of the sayings, which begin this great sermon on the mount that Jesus is so famous for. And it is important to remember first that in some way, all of this is part of his preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. That's what it says in chapter 4, that he is going everywhere preaching the good news, the, the, the announcement that God's kingdom is coming. And these words are a part of preaching that good news, that the kingdom is coming and that the kingdom is like this. And second, it's important to remember that all of this sermon coheres together. These beatitudes are not little, little one-off verses written, uh, you know, for, for kind of like a favorite quotes collection. They're, they all go together and they don't stand alone, but are a part of a greater whole. And today we're going to see how that's the case. Now, these sayings are called Beatitudes after the first word of every verse in the ancient Latin New Testament versions, Beatitudo, which is simply, blessed are. Or in the Greek, the word is makarios. Again, of course, meaning the same. Blessed are. And we use the, bl- the word bless in our culture almost nowhere 
outside of the church except to say maybe when someone sneezes, bless you, right? And I don't even know if we know why we say that anymore. I don't think we know why we say that. We just, that's what we say. That's our automatic response. And so we are guilty of sentimentalizing the word bless. And it's hard for us to capture exactly what is meant by the word blessed. Blessed is not sentimental at all. Translations of these words from the Greek into the English bounce between using blessed are those to happy are those. And to be so blessed is not mere, you know, referring to mere momentary sentiment or feelings or kind of mundane earthly happiness, but rather it is what one commentator describes as deep inner joy, like a supreme happiness which goes beyond the moment. Something that is hard to describe. In fact, it's hard to describe because Jesus gives us a number of different descriptions of it. Blessed are this. uh, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's got all these different sides of this one blessedness. And he's describing those who are truly happy. Thus, a beatitude is simply a declaration of an ultimate blessing or happiness for a person or group of persons because of who they are or what they do. Think about that. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed is this this group. How are they blessed? Because the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. And so we come to verse 8, and it tells us, Blessed are the pure in heart. And the promise is, for they shall see God. I want to go to the end of the verse and work backwards. The blessed ones or happy ones here are those who are pure in heart. And the blessing is, they shall see God. To see God was a great hope hinted at within the Old Testament. It's actually not the four, it's not, it's not uh, expressed as the chief hope, but it's hinted that people might actually get to see God. And some of the great men and women of faith longed to actually see God in the Old Testament. Moses longed for it when he was interceding for Israel after their great sin with the golden calf. He requested it He's praying, he's pleading with God to be, to be forgiven. And after that, he, he cries out to the Lord, show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, but you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Another great of the Old Testament, King David, the psalmist, he, he prayed and he sang and he said, one thing have I asked of the Lord, That will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. One of my favorite verses in the whole Old Testament is Job 19, 25 through 27. We know the story of Job, right? 
Job was a great man, a wealthy man, a, a, a man with, with uh, many sons and daughters, a man with great flocks, a massively wealthy man of the ancient Near East. And he loved God and he loved the Lord. And, and, and Satan came to the Lord and, and Satan bet God that if he would take everything from Job, that Job would curse his face. And we know that, that that's not what Job did. But Job sits for, for days with friends in mourning and lamenting over his life. And it's hard to read parts of the book of Job. It's long, and there's all these arguments back and forth. But in the middle of all of that back and forth with his friends, Job utters these absolutely incredible words. And they're absolutely incredible because they're in the Old Testament. And they're in the Old Testament in the words of a man who probably didn't have a shred of the Old Testament itself. This is what he said. He said, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another." What great hope. The scene that the Bible is talking about is, is right now, we, we, we use it metaphorically. We use it as a way to look, uh, uh, to look on Christ in faith. But the hope that Job is talking about, the hope of those who know God and long for him, is that with their own eyes, with real sight, not virtual, but in actuality, they will look and see the Holy One of Israel and know him and be safe and experience his love in his presence. Amen. Oh, that's just, it's just, it's incredible. He says, if even though my flesh is, is destroyed, in my flesh I shall see God. Now, there's a great mystery there. We don't know how that's going to work, how the Lord is going to put, put things back together and restore bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. But that is the promise of Scripture, that God is going to do that. And, and not just as some sort of floating Casper the friendly ghost, but in a new created body that cannot be destroyed, you will stand and see Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Lord of glory, the King of kings. Amen. That's our hope. Praise God. I just want to shout hallelujah about that. On the other hand, it's not just seeing God. It's that our hearts long to be seen by God. That our lives are not meaningless. That even when we're alone, we are seen. This was the great hope of Israel. In fact, this was absolutely key. I did this looking up all the places that the word see and God are in the Old Testament, kind of a quick study. Uh, and what astonished me was there were very few in the Old Testament about seeing God, but there was a whole lot about God seeing his people. And that their hope was that the Lord saw them, that he saw them in their trouble, that he saw them in their slavery in Egypt, that he saw them in their nation when they were beset by enemies, that he saw them and saw their need for him. And in fact, 
I love Numbers 6, 22 through 26. God gives to Aaron, the high priest, and to all the high priests that follow, he gives to them and commands them to say, when you bless my people, this is how I want you to bless them. This is, as it were, we have liturgy. This is key to the liturgy of ancient Israel, of what the high priest would say in worship over God's people. And he says, uh, number 6, 22 through 26, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In other words, the blessing was they were seen and known by their God. And his face, his countenance is upon them, and they are not forgotten. Yet to see God in the Old Testament was limited by the reality of the fall, right? We talk about the big movements of the, of the Bible story, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And under the fall, even Moses cannot see God's face uh, directly. Isaiah the great prophet, when he sees the Lord in just a vision, not even actually in heaven, but just a vision of heaven, thought he was going to die when he looked upon the Lord. And when Isaiah saw that, he noticed that the seraphim, the angels, covered their faces. And God was most concerned in the Old Testament, not yet that they saw him, but especially that they did not see him wrongly. And so the repeated and constant warnings to not make graven images or idols and worship God falsely, because that is not what God looks like. And that is not what God is like. However, what is in the Old Testament in just seed form is in full flower in the new. To see God is the great hope of the New Testament. And the promised result of redemption and restoration. I just want to give you a couple verses here. A couple passages. 1 John 3.2 says, Beloved, that's you and I, the children of God. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. And incredible how close like the, the echoes of hope to what Job said, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And then Revelation 20, 20, uh, 22, the, the, the very climax of the entire point of what God is doing and the entire drama of redemption, the rescue plan is this. At the end, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. 
This kind of scene that we are promised will no longer be in part. But it will be in full. Totally in full. And this kind of scene is not like, like I, I think when we, when we start to think about what it means to see God, I think we can start to get stuck in our current limitations that we don't see God. Uh, you know, what does it mean to see God? To stare at Him like a, like a great work of art? I don't know if anyone else likes to go to art museums, but art museums are pretty cool, actually. <laughs> Thanks, Jordan. <laughs> They are. They're cool. Like, 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 it's amazing to look at, you know, you go to the Museum of Art. Uh, Indianapolis has got a pretty decent one. Boston's got a great one. Chicago's got a great one. Washington, D.C., New York City, they have these great ones. And when you go and you look at them, you, you finally go. If you've never gone, you stand there. And if there's, like, any appreciation at all, you go, oh, this is why people come here. This is amazing. There are incredible works of art. And you look at them, and, and it kind of does something to you. But it, it's, it's all copies, really, of the real world. In other words, what the artist is trying to capture when he does that is some semblance of what he looked out his window or what he looked over the hillside or a person that he sat in front of them and looked at and tried to replicate what is real with some kind of representation to save that, that, that moment for later. And, it, and it's incredible and it's beautiful. But, but regardless of the artist... A painting of the ocean is nothing in comparison with the ocean. A painting of our our loved one is nothing in comparison to our loved one, right? And when we behold God, when when we, I don't think we, we think about this, but in relationship, when we look, like, let's be honest, like, there's a lot of human rules around looking at people in the face, right? Like, it's weird. It's awkward. It's like, how many seconds can you do that? And is it okay? And you got, you kind of got to learn all those things. And, and, and the longer you can look at someone in the face and not look away is some kind of barometer of how close you really are in reality, hopefully. But when you look at someone in the face, even if it's in small ways, you are always drawn into relationship. You either have to look away or you begin to relate. You begin to talk. And when we see God, it's not as seeing some some static thing. But in fact, we're pulled in because God is not a thing. God is not an object. God is a, a person. In fact, he's more of a person than we are. He's more personal than we are. He is tri-personal. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally existing in relationship with one another. And when we see him, we behold him. We're pulled into the kind of relationship that we were made for. Amen. And this is the end or the telos or the purpose of the ultimate aim of all of our hearts longing from the moment we are born. We, no one has to train babies to look for eyes and faces. Babies immediately begin to look for eyes and faces. And we long for faces to be seen and to see. And all of that is pointing us That we long for the face of the one who made us. Amen. Who tires of seeing the ocean? I've never worried about that. I've always... Hold on a second. 
I've never tired of seeing the ocean. I'm always planning on how to get there again. You know what I'm saying? And if that is true of one part of God's created reality, how much more true is that of God himself, who is infinite and eternal, that what we will experience in glory in heaven will not just satisfy us, but continue to draw a longing for his presence out of our hearts forever. Amen. So the blessing of seeing God, Jesus says, comes to those who are pure in heart. So we're working back. We talked about the blessedness of seeing God. Now we're talking about the blessedness of being pure in heart. This purity is threefold, I think. I think this is especially where we will, we will find that we see the Beatitudes in context of the entire Sermon on the Mount uh, uh, to be really, really helpful. First of all, purity refers to a kind of cleanliness, right? But not outwardly cleanliness here, but rather inwardly cleanliness. The Jews that Jesus was often ministering to were insanely focused on keeping everything clean. They had rules about how to clean everything in the house, everything on their person, because it all tied into their, to, in, in their understanding, uh, because God had tried had built this into them in the Old Testament to try to, to, through practical things, show them some sense of what holiness and sin were like. They had become incredibly focused on just the outward things. But Jesus comes and he says, it's not the outside of the cup or the person that is in need of of, of being cleansed. It's the inside of the cup. And so it's inwardly cleanless, as in not a filthy heart, but a pure one. Thus, Jesus later in, in the Sermon on the Mount says that righteousness means not merely not committing adultery, But righteousness means not even lusting after one another in the heart. Jesus says that righteousness means not not merely not committing murder, but in the heart, not even getting wrongfully angry at our brothers. Secondly, purity refers to the high quality of a substance, right? Like if you've ever shopped for a wedding ring, like the quality of the diamond, right? Like, how much do you value that? It refers to the high quality of a substance. And here it means that the heart is motivated rightly. So Jesus says later in his sermon that righteousness is seen, or righteousness is found in unseen fasting and prayers that are in private That is worship that is truly unto the Lord and not done in order to be seen by others. So purity refers to the the quality of the thing. And third, purity refers to an unmixed thing, right? Like it's one thing through and through. Like the whole thing is that pure gold, unalloyed gold or pure diamond, not a mixture. There's no like it's not gold and silver or gold and bronze, pure gold. It's one thing. And it means simply that the heart is singular in its devotion. That is that the will, like the will as in the thing you want with, like you're wanting, you're wanting, you're wanter, your desires, that that wanting is single-minded and it's united. And there is a single-mindedness of purpose and an, an integrity of what you want and the actions that follow. And so Jesus says later in his sermon, I... 
uh, in his famous words that no one can serve two masters for you cannot serve God and money. And then he says, and then he says, don't seek first after what you worry over, which is what we all do, but rather seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So this is the real thing, purity of heart, a clean heart, a rightly motivated heart, and a united heart of singular purpose. Now, the blessedness of such purity of heart is real freedom. A life with only one Lord, not enslaved to other things, not pulled in opposite directions, but moving only in one direction towards God. Now, we, we imagine what it was like to see God uh, just a moment ago. Imagine with me for a moment, what would it be like to be truly pure in heart for one minute? To not worry for a minute? To not want the wrong thing for a minute? To have a heart and a mind that thinks and sees God in the heart only. That's what heaven is going to be like. Not just seeing God, but seeing God with hearts that are completely new. And there are no frictions in our worship. And there's no division in our hearts. There's just one Lord of our lives. Man, I long for such a day, don't you? So that's it. If you're pure in heart, you will see God. (laughs) That's all you got to do. Have a clean heart, completely undivided, and want only God. It's right at this point that we realize two things. Something more is being provided here than a list of things to do. And secondly, if this is the standard, we have already failed. The problem is, I am not pure. We are not pure. In every way, you and I fail the test of purity of heart. We know this if we are honest. Our desires are not clean. Our motivations are not perfect. And our will is divided. Just just, I mean, our will is divided all the time. Just, just think about like trying to pick a restaurant as a family, how divided our wills are. Like we can't even decide what to watch together without getting upset. We're so divided and struggle with loving each other that, that, that like we can't just give another hour and a half. Like, yeah, you choose what you want. I'm okay. And everybody sort of fights on like letting others go first. Like our will is so divided that we can't do that. You know what I'm talking about. But seriously, it goes way deeper than that, doesn't it? We want other things besides the Lord himself. And it's right at this point that we've got to lift our eyes from what's being said. And we need to to see the one who is doing the saying. Jesus. And this points us in two directions. It points us, one, to see that all of these qualities sound a great deal like the character of Jesus himself. And that is exactly right. These qualities are the sum of Jesus' character. 
Who else was rich but for our sakes became poor and earned the kingdom of heaven? Who else but in perfect love mourned over the sins of his people and was comforted? Who else in meekness did not take by force what was rightfully is, but perfectly did the will of his father exactly what his father asked him, which was to be crucified and buried. And the promise was that he would be resurrected. And he did that. He prayed in the garden and he kept his uh, uh, he, he kept the father's word to him and he rightly will inherit the earth. Who else is totally pure of heart and judged everyone around him perfectly? Because there was in him no sin, he ascended to the Father to see God and to sit at his right hand as the Son of Man. And it points us then, of course, to the way that Jesus offers us to join him in all these promises. Here's the thing. Because we're under the new covenant, because of Jesus, we're invited, not like in the Old Testament, to look away, but we are invited now, even as sinners, to look to. And we're invited to look to Jesus. We are invited as sinners to a kind of looking, a kind of seeing. We are invited to see Jesus and specifically to see him as crucified king crucified for us and for our sin. The one who was pure in heart, who looked down from the cross and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Crucified for us, buried for us, raised for us. God talked to Moses privately up on the mountain, but Jesus was crucified publicly lifted upon the cross for all to see. And if we look upon him in faith upon the cross, we shall eventually look upon him face to face in the new heavens and the new earth on the streets of the new Jerusalem. This is the blessedness of forgiveness. Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. This forgiveness is shorthand for all that God does for us in Christ. When we say we're forgiven, In Christ, we're united with him. We're one with him. We're adopted. We're sons and daughters. We're beloved. We belong to him forever. Brothers and sisters, fellow believers, we are constantly tempted in our walk with Christ to look elsewhere. To look to ourselves, to others, to things, for blessedness, for happiness, for satisfaction, and even for our right standing before God. Isn't it amazing that in our own walk with Him, when we think about being right with Him, we often look to ourselves. We think about our prayer life. We think about our our giving. We think about our serving. We think about our feelings and our thoughts. But if we are ultimately to see God, we must keep looking at Jesus alone. Charles Spurgeon, a great, great British preacher, said in his unique way, and I quote, it's long, but it's absolutely beautiful. It is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self to Jesus. But Satan's work is just the opposite of this, for he is constantly trying to make us regard ourselves instead of Christ. He insinuates, your sins are too great for pardon. You have no faith. You do not repent enough. 
You will never be able to continue to the end. You have not the joy of his children. You have such a wavering hold of Jesus. All these are thoughts about self, and we shall never find comfort or assurance by looking within. But the Holy Spirit turns our eyes entirely away from self. He tells us that we are nothing, but that Christ is all in all. Remember, therefore, it is not thy hold of Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. It is not thy joy in Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. It is not even thy faith in Christ, though that be the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merits. Therefore, look not so much to thy own hand with which thou art grasping Christ as to, as to Christ. Look not to thy hope, but to Jesus, the source of thy hope. Look not to thy faith, but to Jesus, the author and finisher of thy faith. We shall never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our doing, or our feeling. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. Amen. So today, let us look to Christ, and soon we shall see God. Amen. Pray with me.